Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3. And we're going to have to go really quick. Um, so if you guys will, let's, let's jump in. If you guys um, got your Bibles, Romans 3, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to get started. God, thank you so much for this morning, for the joy of, of seeing these little kids that you created in your image, just for the, the, the hope of, of seeing them and knowing they're going to be raised towards knowing you. Um, God, as we look to your word this morning and just continue wrestling with the hard truths um, that there is bad news that makes the gospel so glorious, God, help us to, help us to wrestle with it um, in a way that points us to you. God's name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, we live, we live in a culture that is addicted to or just intoxicated with self-esteem. I remember as a kid growing up in elementary school, you always had those cool slogan posters, you know, shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land amongst the stars. Um, and, you know, you, you might hear uh, an assembly speaker in front of a whole group of kids say, you were born to be above average. And when you think about that, that doesn't make sense. It's not mathematically possible. But a poster that says 49% of you were born to be above average just isn't quite as cool or inspiring, right? Um, but because of that, because we are so focused in on self-esteem, that makes it really hard for us to embrace the bad news of the gospel. Because we're so intoxicated with wanting to feel good about ourselves, when we hear this message that we're not that great, that we desperately need help, that's something that our, our natural tendency is to resist, right? And so um, years ago, about 13 years ago, I was posed the question, are we good people, basically good people that God can work with or are we completely spiritually bankrupt? And, and that question created in me this wrestling match. And specifically with Romans chapter three, it was a three year wrestling match where things about my faith were torn down, other things were shaken, and, and I, I hated what I was having to face. But what happened is God rebuilt something that made my worship of him so much more deep and what created in me a greater love and appreciation for for who Jesus is and what he's done. So, so let's wrestle today. And this might start for you a journey that might take years, but I promise you, if we will engage with God's word, it's going to shape us and awaken our hearts towards him. So Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. Real quick, if, you've, if, you've, if you're new here or you've been um, out and just haven't seen where we're at, in chapter two, Paul has been building a case that Jewish Christians are no better off than Gentile Christians. That at the end of the day, whether their background is Jewish or Gentile, that they are equally sinful and equally desperate for Jesus, right? Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, you are equally sinful, equally desperate for Jesus. Now, Paul has been preaching this message for almost 20 years, maybe a little over 20 years at the point when he writes Romans. And so he knows that when he says that, specifically to those with a Jewish background, there are going to be objections. And so in verses one through eight, we're gonna read it kind of like a Q&A where they're raising objections and he's going to answer them. So verse one gives us the first objection that he anticipates. Then what advantage has the Jew? 
or what is the value of circumcision, right? This is the first objection that he expects people to give is for someone to say like, wait, wait, wait. I thought the Jewish people were God's chosen people. I thought that they were people that got a special revelation of God, something that was different than all other nations. And so are you telling me that there's no advantage to being Jewish? And we think, especially after chapter two, that Paul's answer to this objection is going to be, no, there is no advantage. But he shocks us. Look at verse two. He says, much in every way. In other words, there is an advantage to being Jewish. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, right? Or the Jews were entrusted with God's revelation of himself through, through Moses and the writings and the prophets. And so, so they had an advantage in that God gave them this special revelation. You might be wondering like, well, how is that an advantage? Well, let's say that, that I asked you, because we're in Tennessee, um, I was like, hey, I want everyone in here to draw us a picture of Davy Crockett. Right, some of you might have taken Tennessee history and saw a picture in a book. I, I don't know if there's like a big picture at Crockett High School. Like, but some of you might be like, I think I know what he looks like. I'm not quite sure. But let's say that I pass out to this half of the room, just blank paper, just blank paper with a pencil. And I'm like, go at it, draw me a Davy Crockett. And then this side of the room, you guys get paper, but it's not blank. It has all of these little dots with numbers. And you're like, I've seen this before. It's a connect the dot worksheet. So you're like one to two two to three, and you start just connecting. All of a sudden, everyone on this side of the room draws a perfect picture. It looks the exact same. It's like your picture looks great. And over here, we've got some stick figures, you know, like some stick figures with hair and like a, a, a musket, you know, like it's like, all right, good job, good job. And what he's showing here is like, because the Jewish people had been given God's word for them, all they had to do was connect the dots like you guys had God's truth. You saw how desperate you were for a savior, that God's law was never meant to be this checklist that you can somehow master. It was a benchmark that you were doomed to fail. And as you failed, it created in you this, this, this something that would have gone like, I can't save myself. I need someone else to step in and to fix what I've broken. He says, so yeah, you have an advantage in that all you guys had to do was connect the dots while the Gentiles had just a blank slate um, as far as needing, knowing their need for Jesus, right? So he says, you guys had an advantage, but this advantage doesn't change their standing with God. So while they had an advantage in just having to connect the dots to see that they needed Jesus, the truth was that they still needed Jesus. So their standing before God was an advantage, just the fact that God had shown them very clearly their need. All right, next we have him say this. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? All right, and so you see the, the word faithfulness, faithlessness, unfaithful. All right, what's happening here is Paul just said that their advantage was that they knew their need for Jesus. Right? So verse two, their advantage was in that they knew their need for Jesus. So a Jewish person who had the Old Testament should have seen that they needed a savior. So now the next objection is this. They're basically saying, okay, so God promised to rescue his people. If a Jew misses Jesus, like if a Jew has the scriptures and somehow doesn't see that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was looking to, Will God go back on his promise? Their question is like, well, God promised to save his people. So if someone doesn't see their need for Jesus, but they're part of the Jewish heritage, like is God gonna go back on his promise to rescue his people? Is God gonna be faithful to his word? And so what happens here is the Jewish understanding of faithfulness, when it came to who God was, 
was seen in his mercy. So if you asked a Jewish person at, at this time in Rome, how do you know God is faithful? They would have responded that he has always been merciful to us, right? So their understanding of faithfulness was tied into God's mercy, right? Does that make sense? Faithfulness equals mercy. Or God is merciful, that's how we know he is faithful, right? So to this, Paul says, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That might seem a little confusing. What he's doing here is he's quoting Psalm 51 verse 4. What's happening in Psalm 51 is this is written by King David. King David was this awesome king, had done incredible things, but then he slips up in a very big way, has an affair with Bathsheba, ends up getting her pregnant, and then has her husband sent to the front of the battle lines and basically murdered. He's trying to cover his tracks. Eventually, his best friend, or one of his friends, Nathan, um, Jonathan was his best friend, Nathan, another one of his friends, reveals to him his sin that he's been found out, that he's been caught, and he finds himself broken and repenting before God and he writes Psalm 51. So Psalm 51, the context is David's sin. What does he say in Psalm 51? God, you would be just in giving me what I deserve. Or your faithfulness is not only seen in your mercy, but also your justice. So here's what Paul's doing by quoting Psalm 51 is he's saying, look, you think that God's faithfulness is only seen in his mercy, but I'm telling you that his faithfulness is equally seen in his justice. So whether God holds back and gives you grace or gives what you deserve, either way, God is faithful to who he is. So he's rebuilding for them or reconstructing for them what it means for God to be faithful. Faithfulness is not just mercy, it's also justice. So what he's saying is they very well could be punished for their sin, which leads us to the next objection. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? All right, so this objection is he's saying, look, if we don't fail, God doesn't send Jesus. So if God needed our failure, then how is it fair for him to punish us for something he used or something he needed? All right, so he basically says in verse four, God could punish you and he would still be faithful. And they're pushing back and saying, wait, wait, wait. If he needs our failure to send Jesus... So he uses the bad things that we did for a greater good, then how's it fair for him to hold us accountable? Or how's it fair for him to punish us for something that he needed to use? That just, that doesn't seem fair. Look at verses six, um, six through eight. He says, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. All right, so in, in verses seven and the first part of eight, he's reframing the objection from verse five. The objection is basically this. If God can use my sin for a greater good, then is it really bad? Like if God can take what I did, if he can take my crooked lines and somehow paint straight with them, then is it okay for me to do whatever I want because God's gonna work it for a greater good? The argument they're pushing back with is God can use all things for good, so does it really matter what we do? And to this in verse six, he goes, no, that doesn't make any sense. He goes, if, if we're gonna use the argument that God can use it for a greater good, 
He goes, you have to realize that that's not just a Jewish thing. God's using all things, whether it's Jewish or Gentile, for a greater good, for the praise of his name. And so if that were the case, then no one would be accountable. No one would ever receive God's justice or God's wrath. And he says, like, we can't take that objection without applying it across the board. And he's looking at them saying, you guys agree that some people deserve justice, right? And they would say, yes, like some people, but who doesn't? Good people, right? And he, he goes on to say, like, he's like, look, people accuse me of preaching this message that do whatever you want, God's going to forgive you anyways. And he goes, that's absurd. He goes, if you think that my message of grace means that you can respond in rebellion, he goes, I don't think you understand God's grace, right? So he says, like, I've never preached this message. My message has never been that grace leads to rebellion or can't lead to rebellion. My message has always been that grace should lead to surrender. So he goes, like, I don't preach that false message, all right? Now, maybe you've checked out and you're like, I'm not following you at all, Jeff. Let me just modernize this argument, okay? At the heart of verses one through eight, at the heart of what Paul is Um, assuming will be pushback from his Jewish audience is this, that they're trying to make sense of why do some people get mercy and other people get justice? Like people are trying to make sense of like, okay, it looks like God gives some people mercy and he gives other people justice. So how do I make sense? How is that fair? And he knows that the way people reason with this is that, well, good people deserve God's mercy and bad people deserve his justice. He, he knows that at the heart of this is how do we make sense of God gives mercy to some, justice to others. And he knows that their response will be, well, good people get mercy, bad people get justice. And, and he's, he's gonna come in and break that down. And now for us, a modern version of this same question is this, how could a loving God send good people to hell? You ever asked that question? Has someone ever asked you that question? Right? Like, how could a loving God send good people to hell? That doesn't seem fair. Right? That's a modern way of looking at the objections that Paul is receiving in these first eight verses. Like, how is it fair that some people get mercy and other people get justice? Right? Like, you're saying that my algebra teacher, like my high school algebra teacher, who was a great guy, who sacrificed so much and and lived like below the poverty line to love on high school kids because he was an agnostic that he doesn't get the nod to get into heaven. Like, like that doesn't seem fair. So we, we operate off of this, what seems fair, what doesn't seem fair. And so the problem that we run into is the problem we run into is that everyone thinks they should get the nod, right? The problem we run into is everyone at the end of the day thinks that they're on the good team that they're on the side that should get mercy. No one's like, I really think I should go to hell. Seems good for me. Like no one's like saying like, that's my team. No one thinks that. Everyone thinks that they're a pretty good person and they should get the nod. And so Paul is going to completely deconstruct and crush that mindset, getting at fairness. Is it fair for God to give mercy to some and justice to others? Okay, is it fair? All right, is it So let's look at verse nine. He says, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. So yes, they have an advantage, but they're not better off. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Okay, that underword, under sin, is a legal term that would be the same as citizenship. Like you are under the rule of Caesar, right? You're under the citizenship of Rome. So he's saying, Everyone is under, 
right? Legal standing, your citizenship is under sin. So if there's two camps, a camp of sinners and a camp of righteous people or a nation of sinners and a nation of righteous people, he says, everybody, both the Greek, the Greek and the Jew, all are under legally residents of the nation of sin. So just because you're a Jew and you had an advantage in connecting the dots doesn't mean you're any better off. You are equally condemned as the other person, right? He says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. In verse 10, he says, look, no one can stand legally right before God. No one is in legal right standing before God. We're talking about Abraham and Moses and Ruth and Esther, and Billy Graham, and Mother Teresa, and your nanny, like whoever it is, he's like, no one on their own merit can stand before God and be in the right. He says, no one's righteous. The best person you can think of, none are righteous. He says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All right, when he says no one understands, he's saying like our thinking, our minds have been completely corrupt. Um, there's a term called cognitive bias which means that you could take evidence, like the exact same evidence, you can give it to one party and they can examine it. You can give it to another party and they can examine it and you will get two totally different responses based off of the biases that they bring to the table. One would be right and one would be wrong, yet they were given the same evidence. How is one wrong? Because they have cognitive bias or they have error in their thinking that they bring to the table. He's saying that, look, when it comes to our minds, we all have this error in our thinking when it comes to who God is and who we are. No one sees themselves rightly in standing of who God is. Like we don't on our own understand how glorious God is and how sinful we are. No one understands. No one has a right understanding of God. Then he says this, he says, no one seeks for God. And people hear this like, wait, wait, wait. I know plenty of people who seek for God. People who come to Redeemer, who are like, they're praying. Um, I know people who are at the, the Hindu temple up in Kingsport, and they're, they're, like, they're seeking something spiritual. I've got friends that are on the south side of town, at the, the, the church of Latter-day Saints, and they're seeking for God. Like, like people of other religions. Like, 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 I know plenty of people who seek for God, so this is wrong. This is wrong because I know people who seek for God. He's saying, look, people will seek God for God's stuff, but people don't seek God for God. People will seek God because they want fulfillment. People will seek God because they want blessing. People will seek God because they're, they're sick and want healing. People will seek God for the things that he can give, but no one seeks God just for God. It's like, look, no one seeks God. He continues. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All right, so, so here he says, look, and when he says turned aside, he's saying that no one hasn't operated at some point to say, I know what's best for my life. He's like, look, everyone, like when it comes to like, God knows what's best for your life or you know what's best for your life, no one hasn't turned this direction towards saying, I think I know what's best. I mean, for example, Jesus says that if your brother has something against you, like if you come to worship and someone has something against you, not you have something against them, but they have something against you. You know what he says to do? He says, leave your gift there at the altar, go first and be reconciled to them and then come back and worship. How many of us today know people that have something against us and yet we sit here and worship and we refuse to do anything because that's on them what we just did in that moment or what we might be doing today is we're saying, I kind of think I know it's better. 
I like my way better than his way. He's saying no one, and we could just go down the list of a thousand things. No one at some point hasn't operated based off this mindset that says, I know it's best for my life or I know better than God. He says, all have turned aside. Then he says, no one does good. And, And that's another pushback. Like, I know plenty of people who do good. Like, how many of you feel like you know non-Christians that do more good than Christians, right? You're like, like that algebra teacher, like that's someone, like, it's like, I know plenty of people who do just as much good, if not more good than Christians, and they don't even know Jesus. Like, what do you mean no one does good? He's saying good in the sense of um, earning salvation, right? When he says good, he's talking about um, merit for salvation. He's saying, look, no one has done enough good to earn right standing with God. Um, Isaiah 64, 6, if you read this, it says that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. You want to get in depth and study that? The filthy rag is a rag from a menstrual cycle. He's saying when you take your best efforts and say, God, this is what I bring to the table, it looks like that type of rag before the righteousness that he is. He's like, look, your best efforts are not seen as good before God. They might be good in form to the outside world looking in, but God knows the motivation to that. And anything that's not for his glory is sin to him. So it's like a filthy rag. He says, no one does good. No one can do enough good to stand before God where he says, you did it right, so you're in. He says, no one will stand before God and plead their goodness as a way to get into heaven. He says, their throat is an open grave. Think of that imagery, a grave dug by bolton concrete, like grave with a body in it that's just rotting. No vault covering it, no casket, just a rotting body in a grave. He's saying what comes out of us is like a rotten decay. He's saying like we are morally decaying people. So from within us, out of our throats, an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He's saying, look, from inside of us, there is moral decay that's coming to our throats, to our tongues, to our lips, and out of our mouth. That's what inside of us, the corruption is exposing itself simply in just the way that we talk. Like think about this week, how many of you have gossiped? How many have lied? How many of you have told half truths? How many of you have said things that are discouraging to others? How many have bragged or kind of built yourself up? How many of you have cussed, responded in anger? He's like, well, just from the simple way that we talk, we condemn ourselves and show the moral decay that's at the depths of our hearts. Then he says, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right? So in, in the first few verses, he's saying, look, our sin nature has corrupted the way we think. Then he shows that our sin nature has affected the way that we talk. And now he's showing this, our sin nature affects the way that we act. Like sin has corrupted every ounce of who we are. Now, he's he's not saying that we're as bad as we possibly could be, but he's saying there's no one who can stand before God and be seen as good. All right, this is is the bad news of the gospel. Um, A a term for this is called total depravity. And that that term gets a bad rap, but the word depravity comes from the Latin word for crooked. And it means that God's ways for his creation have become twisted. 
Right? So it means that God's ways have become crooked. God's ways, his intention, his design has become twisted. And that word total means that that twistedness has affected everything about who we are and the things that we choose to do. Like it affects all of us. That doesn't mean that we're a bunch of brute savages, right? He's not saying that everyone is wicked as they possibly could be, but he's saying that no one has in them something good that they can leverage or step on to step up to God. There's nothing good in us that we can leverage for God. So when you think about the the question, like, are we good people, basically good people that God can work with, or are we completely spiritually bankrupt? Romans 3 says we are bankrupt, that there is no good in us to leverage or to step on to step towards God. This is... This is a pretty hopeless message, right? Like, like this is pretty hopeless. And so, so when we look at this, right, like let's say, say that you just, you're like, I want to read the Bible, Jeff, what should I read? And you're like, I'm going to start Romans. If you've been reading Romans, the first three chapters are really heavy and really discouraging. Like when we read this stuff, what our hearts want to do is to say, that sounds a little extreme, I don't think that's what Paul was saying. Like, we, we, want, we want to push back. We want to say, like, you know what? If that's who God is and that's how he sees me, then I don't want anything to do with him. All of a sudden, we see that this message is pretty offensive. And if it's becoming offensive, maybe now you understand why Paul had to say, I'm not ashamed of it. Like, if you feel offended by this message, you're hearing it right. Okay, if, if, this, if this messes with you in a way that you want to push back on and say, not me, or that's not my stuff, then you are finally hearing the bad news that makes the gospel so glorious rightly. All right, so, so, so here's what Paul wants us to understand in these first three chapters. Look at verses 19 through 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped or every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right, here's, in, in the, here's what Paul wants us to understand. Specifically to a culture that wants to understand fairness to a culture that wants to look at God's ways and say, that's not fair. Paul would say this, you want fair? You don't get heaven, you get hell. Okay, that's, that's what Paul is driving home these first three chapters. If you want fair, you don't get heaven, you get hell. Thanks, I'll be back next week, right? Like, yes, After this, verses 21 and following, the news gets good. This stuff gets amazing. Like, I can't wait to preach next week. You know, they they say that a good speaker should create tension in a sermon and then release it at the right time. I can't release it until next week. Like, but like, please come back. But if you don't hear the bad news of the gospel, next week will not be incredible to you. The bad news is that if we get fair, we don't get heaven, we get hell. You see, the question we should ask isn't, how could a loving God let good people go to hell? The question should be, how can a holy God let any sinner into heaven? Okay, the question isn't, how can a, a loving God send good people to hell? Because the answer is, there's no good people. There are no good people. 
the answer, the, the question we should be wrestling with is how can a holy God let any sinner into heaven? Right? That's what we need to be wrestling with. That's what Paul is going to unpack the beautifulness of next week. All right, so, so what do we do with this? All right, so like, what, what do we take away from this, right? When you're like, but wait, wait we're a self-esteem culture, Jeff. Shoot for the moon. You'll land amongst the stars. Like, I don't like this, right? What do we, what do, we do with this, all right? I want to ask a question to the religious people in the room. I want to ask a question to those who don't like the bad news of the gospel, right? I want to ask a question to those when we say, are we good people, basically good people, that God can work with, or are we completely bankrupt spiritually? I want to ask a question. What if the biggest thing that's holding you back from God isn't your sin, but your good works? What if the biggest thing that's holding you back from experiencing God's grace, from knowing the beauty of the gospel, from being empowered by the truth, isn't your sin but your good works. You see, because, because the more we think we bring something to the table, the less we'll think we need Jesus. The more we think we bring something good to the table, the less we think we'll need Jesus. See, the only way to receive what God gives is to become before him with empty hands. And the only way our hands will ever be empty is to know how spiritually helpless we truly are. Just to, to think about this, like I, I should, like, I wish we had a stage sometimes. I don't like a stage because I'm like here, but like, some, like if we had a stage, let's imagine we're at a bigger church with cooler stuff. Um, like, and I had props. I would have, I would have just like um, a, a big box, like a refrigerator box with the heavy stuff in it. And I would pull James Smith up. I'm like, James, come up here. And he'd come up, like, lift this box. And he's strong. He's a manly Monday guy. So he picks that box up. And I'm like, okay, like, this is like, like our gift that we think we bring to God. And so he walks up and he comes up to me. I'm like, this is what it looks like when we think we bring something good to the table. Like we're walking up to God with our stuff. Like, hey, God, like, here's how I can make sense of why I'd get heaven. Here's why I can make sense of why you would choose me and not that person. God, here's, here's, how, here's why I think that, that I actually got in. It's like, I, I, I've brought you some stuff, all right? And then imagine that I'm over here. Like I said, this, use your imaginations. We've got a stage. We've got stuff. I've got this huge board. I mean, it's like huge, and it just says grace on it. And I'm, and I'm holding that board, and I'm looking at James's refrigerator box. And I'm like, I don't want, I don't want that. Like one man's junk is not my treasure. And so, um, so I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I'm like, but I want to give you this. And he's like, but I have, but I have this, I have my box. And I'm like, I don't want your box, but I have this. Like if he comes holding his stuff, he's not in a position to receive it. The only way that he can receive the grace that I want to give is if he empties his hands and comes with a posture of openness. You see, when we read Romans 3, it should create in us a posture of open hands with nothing to give. It says, God, I can't save myself. I'm 100% bankrupt, and I need you more than I could ever imagine. That's what it looks like for our mouths to be stopped or for us to be silent before him is to say, God, I got nothing. And that's the posture that he says, I want to give you my son. I want to give you my grace. I want to give you eternity. So will you come before God today 
with open hands so that you can be moved by his amazing grace. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for showing us a mirror to unpack who we truly are. As much as we don't like what we see, God, a hard truth is better than a sweet lie. So God, help us to wrestle with what's hard so that we can truly see what's good. Let us be a people that come before you, not with with our righteousness in hand, but with empty hands so that we can receive what you give. God, it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. We want to take time to respond through communion. And what's interesting is in verse 18, it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What you see in that is that the sin that we commit is ultimately the result of not seeing God for who God is. We don't fear God and that leads us to sin. But Psalm 33 through four, listen to this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Forgiveness and fear. You see, this fear isn't being terrified. It's recognizing God's size, his goodness, and his importance. It's having a healthy sense of awe and reverence for who he is and what he's done. And this is best accomplished through knowing his forgiveness. And we see his forgiveness most clearly at the cross. So as we take communion today, let it lead you to awe and reverence of who God is and what he has done. For those who are Christians and trust Christ, you're invited to the table to remember Jesus, his body given for you and his blood spilt. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you are invited to trust him for your salvation. Nothing you bring to the table but Christ and Christ alone. But wherever we are, this is the time to respond as God leads. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.